everyone, welcome to another episode of the Boston University Podcast, the podcast for dog people. If it's your first time listening, I'm John, a former animal cruelty officer and a former animal shelter supervisor. And I'm Jamie, I am a certified dog trainer and a canine behavioral consultant. On this episode, we're joined by our friend Sophie Gammond, the artist behind Pitbull Flower Power and one of the most influential figures in animal welfare. So if you don't know Sophie, you're probably still familiar with her work. She's the artist behind Pitbull Flower Power and Wet Dog, all photo series with the goal of getting animals adopted. She's also a prevalent figure in animal welfare and frequently uses her platform to raise tons of money to help shelters and other smaller organizations that are in need, especially in the more impoverished communities in the United States and far beyond into other countries as well. We discussed so many things, everything from how art led to dogs and Sophie's motto of following the dream that follows you. We talked about how can rescues improve, challenges that shelters face, including scrutiny, ambiguity of the no-kill movement, and a lack of funding, how dog training can reduce length of stay, increase adoptability, standard of care, quality of life, all this and so much more. So definitely stay tuned for this entire episode. I know it's long, but it is so worth it. And you're going to have a new person to look up to because Sophie is amazing and she knows her stuff. So without further ado, here's the interview. All right. So we have been teasing this episode quite a bit lately. Conflicting schedules has kind of pushed it out into November, but it's finally here. It and is here. We are joined today with our friend Sophie. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Yes. How are you, you doing today, yeah, Sophie? A journey. This year is a journey. Uh, I'm good. How are you guys? We're good. You're right. This year has been uh, kind of a little bit of a dumpster fire, but here we are. And we're so excited to have you on. We, like John said, have been teasing this for a while now. You are basically known as the flower power photographer of all our lovely rescue friends. Could you just tell our listeners that maybe don't know about you a little bit about what you do and all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, so I'm an artist, uh, mainly photographer. And basically what I do is I take portraits of shelter dogs who need to be adopted. So they're basically my muses in all the projects that I do. And I'm mostly known for two projects. Uh, the first one is Wet Dog, which is a, a series of miserable, soggy dogs during bath time. <laughs> and then the project that I'm known for in the rescue community is called Pitbull Flower Power. And it's a series of shelter pitbulls who were waiting for adoption, wearing flower crowns that I hand build. Uh, and the portraits often lead to adoption. And it's also a great tool for pitbull advocacy and to kind of rebrand these dogs and give them a softer image. So I also do a bunch of other artsy stuff, <laughs> but mainly photography and mainly shelter dogs. I noticed that you started recently doing, I don't even know what it's called. It's like sewing, but embroidery. Um, yeah. Embroidery. Yep. Yeah. You're such a man. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with the threads and the needles, you know, that yeah, you know, that's you through <laughs> knitting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I've always been an artist that uh, I've done a lot of different things uh, in my life. Photography is the thing that really stuck and became my career, but I never really saw myself as a photographer. I really missed touching things. And it's also part of why I started making flower crowns for the dogs. I wanted to glue things together and just have a a more tactile relationship to my uh, creative process. And so I guess lately I decided, you know, I'm going to share some of that work with my followers too, just to, I don't know, to kind of 
share the things that I work on outside of my photography. And um, I've been working on this little series of embroideries that are basically a mix of photography and embroidery. And I use intake photos from, um, you know, city shelters. So they usually have a high euthanasia rate. And um, those are, you know, the photos that some of us have seen of dogs who are terrified or sick or just really not in their best space. Right. And often these photos are the last photo that will be used and known of that dog, you know, especially in shelters that have such high turnaround and high euthanasia rates. So I wanted to honor these doggies. And I've used these photos in, in several of my exhibits. I've used them in uh, installations and paintings and uh, I made pillows out of them. So I've always explored different things and, and now they're embroideries. And I love that because I get to stay with them for a long time. And like every thread, you know, is like a stroke. And I really want to honor these doggies. I wow. love that. I never actually realized that that was possibly the last medium yeah. of art that would capture them. Because I, I, I've seen it. Obviously, we follow you on Instagram. And I'm showing Jamie right now one that I saw. I actually saw this one already and it really did touch me. Oh, that's really beautiful actually it really is beautiful uh, it's the one with all of the um it almost looks like there's a ton of ropes around the dog's neck oh the leashes yeah yes. the ropes yeah um beautiful i mean it really it really paints a picture for you and you know what we're trying to avoid so um i mean what you do is just amazing and i think it's crazy because i didn't know that about you like the photography wasn't the number one thing that stuck out to you so what really took off with that like what made you stick with photography and then add all your little elements to it. You know, some people say that you should follow the dream that follows you, basically. I've never heard that before. I yeah, like that. I think it's the it's the comedian. Oh, his name escapes me. Uh, <laughs> Pete Holmes. Pete okay. Holmes, my husband, is a big fan. And he, I think, I guess in the podcast once he said that. And it really stuck with my husband and I, uh, especially for people that have a lot of different interests. Uh, and for me, you know, I've done so much in my life. I, I used to sing opera. I ran a photo magazine for, for some years in, in France. Uh, I did, a, I studied law, you know, I, I did so many things. And in the, my creative process is very varied and from painting to poetry to a lot of things. So, you know, at some point it's, it's very hard. I remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, just being completely lost and like, what am I going to do? And in the end, life kind of sorted this out for me. Um, when I moved to the U.S., you know, I had a camera and basically that was it. I had to reinvent myself. So photography became my main thing. And it's only because it took off by some kind of magic twist of events. You know, after I photographed Wet Dog, uh, it really spoke to people online and the series went viral. And that pushed me into, oh, guess, I guess I'm a photographer now. You know, And so that's. Yeah, the dream that follows you, basically, that thing that, that gives you positive feedback. Yeah. Like opera singing, for example. I had some positive feedback because I had a really good voice and people connected with it. But my technique was never going to be where it was supposed to be. And I was never completely happy with it. And so at some point, I made the decision, like, am I going to continue persisting in, in something that doesn't completely make, makes me happy? Mm -hmm. Where I'm always going to feel like I'm not good enough. Or is it time to let it go and pursue something else? I love that you just said that. Like, why would you want to put all your effort into something that never makes you feel complete or like you're good enough? That is right. the truest and, thing I've ever heard. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm it's the same with law. I studied law and I have a master's in law. And it was the same thing, like letting go of that. It's like, oh, wow, I put five years of my life into this. In France, you know, 
it's almost free to go to university. What? I didn't, it cost me maybe two <laughs> grand, you know, to, to go to university. Oh um, and so, you know, it's not a big commitment in that aspect. I can't imagine, you know, people in America and students that have all these loans and are indebted for life. Almost My sometimes. hand is raised right now. Right. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> and then, you know, you're like, oh, wow, what if I don't love this? What if this is not making me happy? What if this is like a dead end where mm-hmm. I could h- work as hard as I want? It's never going to be fulfilling. So I really feel for people like this. And sometimes I feel like between high school and university, we should have a gap of where we get to explore more because at 18, 19, like who knows what they want to do with their lives? Yeah, that's so exactly right. There's a weird parallel going on right now with Jamie's life, how she got <laughs> where she started and where she is now. I never even realized that art brought you to dogs yes. and art brought Sophie to dogs. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to college uh, for art. I was a painter and um, oh, cool. I when I when I graduated, didn't really have a plan. And I started painting dogs because dogs were like the biggest. It was is easier for me. I'm not really good at people faces. That always gets me. But dogs, I can pretty much perfect. If you give me a photo, right. I can duplicate it. So I kind of ran with that for a good long time. Um, when I decided to stop, I worked in Philly um, for my sorority's headquarters. And I was like, oh, God, I hate this. Um I was like, all right, what am I going to do? And obviously I went to school for art. So I wanted to put my two passions together. And then I decided I wanted to be a dog trainer. So I kind of did it all at the same time, if that makes sense. I was in school to be a dog trainer while painting and then also working at the shelter with John. So it kind of was like all coming together. And that kind of got us where we are now. It kind of just, you know, having my own business painting and and doing portraits for people then taught me how to be a better business owner. And then having John by my side, because he had already kind of done a business by himself, we kind of spiraled into Possum Walks, and that's the dog walking and pet sitting. And then it spiraled into Possum University once I was certified and felt like I was comfortable to train other people's animals. So, um, yeah, so very funny how John just said, you know, art kind of brought us where we both are now. And and it always kind of spirals in a way where you don't expect it. Like, I never thought that you know when I was a kid that I would be painting dogs and (laughs) then I never thought that I would be a trainer so um, it kind of it's just funny I think yeah I and I think it's it comes back to being flexible in life go with the Um, flow and it's probably the first quality you need you know is really to to embrace the journey and to not be afraid of shifting and especially with COVID-19 like we we've all had to adjust and uh, a lot of us had to invent new careers or shift our career. You know, for me, like I go to shelters to take photos and I haven't been able to this this year because yeah. they have all been closed to volunteers. And so how do I continue my mission? How do I keep my my audience engaged? How do I, you know, take care of myself? And so I redirected my energy on my online store, for example, and I had fun creating new products and, and doing greeting cards and things, you know, because it was a way to, you know, make money when I couldn't do anything else. You had to adapt. We all did. Everyone, we did virtual trainings. I've never done virtual trainings before COVID and they're actually working out really well. Yeah, of course. And I I think we're realizing that we limit ourselves a lot Mm -hmm. and, now, I mean, I'm ready to go back to work. I want to take photos. I want to. <laughs> I bet. You want to get your dogs. hands dirty again. Yeah. And I've also been able to get a lot of long timers adopted uh, through the, you know, during the, the pandemic and the confinement and all that because I had these photos of these dogs I had made years ago. And I know I knew they were still sitting at the shelter and, mm-hmm. and I was able to put more effort towards them, more targeted efforts. Yep. And I actually placed a bunch of dogs that had been waiting seven years. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's been 
all in all, and I've done, you know, a couple of fundraisers. Like, so I think being flexible and, and not being afraid to shift, whether it's a business standpoint or a creative, for example, starting those embroideries, which take a long ass time. Yes, they the do. <laughs> so it's good to be stuck at home, you know, for You weeks kept yourself months. busy. And that's like, I don't know yeah. about for you, but for me, art was always therapy. Um, yeah. Painting, I would like zone out and like someone could be talking to me and I wouldn't even be hearing them. So oh, yeah. um, I Especially loved painting. it. Painting. Yeah. I mean, painting painting is, is like a. Yeah. So therapeutic. I loved it. I, I do miss it. And, you know, it's it's hard because, you know, we have two dogs and running two businesses and, and a baby. Yeah. So it's like I don't have all this downtime oh, to boy. just paint and get into it. But, um, you know, eventually I want to get back to that, you know, when, you know, we're going to have more kids and stuff when they get older and maybe they're at school and I have more downtime like that. That's definitely my goal. Can you tell our listeners more about Wet Dog? Yeah, sure. Uh, wet Dog. You know, it was it was. <sighs> How do I, where do I begin? I have been volunteering <laughs> for rescue for a couple of years and I was just at the end of my rope in, in many ways, uh, emotionally and financially, I was completely broke. And also just like wondering what I was going to do with my life. Basically, you know, I feel like yeah. every five years I, I go through that same existential crisis. So it was one, an end of a cycle for me where I had been a full-time volunteer and it was a very, very demanding work. I, I helped rescue dogs in Puerto Rico and it was just a very intense pace. And a lot of the dogs that I would photograph would not make it, you know, would never be rescued or would die in the street or all they would be rescued and adopted, but then I would never get to see them again. And it just felt like I was chasing my tail and not making a big difference in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And especially not for those particular dogs. And I was a little emotionally burnt out and in a lot of other ways. The rescue community can be ruthless. Compassion fatigue. We actually did an episode on that a few weeks right. ago. It's it's the realest thing when it comes to animal welfare. Right. And also, you know, people in the rescue community can be very difficult oh my to God. work with. This is why they work with animals, because they don't do well right. with people. <laughs> they don't have people <laughs> skills usually. You know? Yes. I, we see it all the time. It's so, it's so disheartening sometimes because you're like, I'm just trying to get something right. done. But you're you're yeah, literally putting the brakes on. Also, you know, just because you work with animals and you are in the rescue world doesn't mean you're necessarily a good person. And I've seen generally over the years, I've seen people go through a lot of abuse from other people in the rescue community under the cover of we're helping animals. So suck it up. And that's something I really stand against. And Me too. Absolutely. I always want to even make a post about it or talk about it because I feel like it's a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, nobody has to suffer any type of emotional or psychological abuse from, you know, another rescuer or, you know, volunteers or a leader of an organization or whatever it is. And the, the cover of, oh, but we're all here to help animals. So we should just, you know, treat each other like yeah. crap. Uh, so I think there was a lot of things came to play. And so long story short, I decided to step away from rescue for, for a bit and try to regroup and decide what I was going to do next. Uh, I was reaching out to shelters, figuring out, you know, the, the dogs at the shelter are already safe and my photos could really make a difference to speed up the adoption process. Mm -hmm. But I was very unlucky. You know, I couldn't find shelters that were interested. I, I got some closed doors. Which is just until, crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> until finally a shelter said yes. Um, so I started that and then I decided, you know, I'm going to give two weeks of my life where I'm going to photograph all the projects I've been wanting to photograph this past couple of years, but never had the time or energy to do it. 
and I said, what is two weeks in a lifetime? Like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to shut everything else down and mm-hmm. I'm going to focus on this, take my camera, set up my studio, take photos. And one of the projects was to take photos at Broomer. I wanted to photograph the, the, the haircut process from, you know, the dog coming in all shaggy and coming out like super cute. That was probably very interesting. Yeah, it was great. But I, what I was very interested in was the Korean grooming and things that are a little extreme where, you know, dogs, dogs are really transformed into like shapes. Um, but I couldn't really find someone to help me with that. And I ended up finding a groomer who was more working like in low income communities. So the dogs would really come in in rough shape and then they would come out super glamorous. So I, I set my studio there for the day and I took some photos and then he started bathing them and I wasn't there for that, but I figured this is my two weeks of embracing the journey, not overthinking and just going with the flow and taking photos. So I switched my camera over to the tub and I started taking photos of these doggies while they were being bathed and I was crying, laughing behind the camera. <laughs> like, what is this? Oh, the faces. Yeah, all the faces. And I came home and I showed my husband and he was like, what is this? And I said, these are wet dots. And we were like cracking up in front of the photos. And <laughs> that's so something I that you and I would do, John. <laughs> right? I pulled a little like selection of images and I was like, so what now? Like, how do I take this? What do I do with this? You know, I was like, could I make money with dog portraits? No, probably not. So like I was still in that phase of, what do I do with this? And I traveled to France and I showed the photos to my dad who used to work in advertisement in the eighties. And he has a very strong eye and he flipped through my recent photos and he stopped at the wet dog and he, he tapped them with his finger and he said, this, I was like, what? This is going to make your career. Or I don't know what I'm talking about. And I was wow. like, what? Wet dog? Like, are you sure? And he said, yeah, go back to New York, show these to everyone. So I go back to New York and I'm like, what does that mean showing them to everyone? You know, where do I begin? And I figured, you know, one thing I've never done is submit my photos to blogs and like actually reach out to people. I was very shy about my work and I I just didn't know if it was good enough. And so I figured I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to send these to a couple of big blogs and in within the hour they were like oh my god this is the best thing ever we're gonna share it today and it just snowballed and then I won awards I got a book deal like it, it, my life went completely nuts wow when was this what year was this it was um I shot this in late 2013 so I went viral the end of that year and then 2014 I won the award and then summer 2014 is when I started doing pitbull flower power so basically, by the time I started Pitbull Flower Power, I had already my book deal and all that. I, my name was circulating a little bit, and I had had a lot of media coverage. So I was able to go back to a lot of these people and say, hey, here's a new project. So it really opened the door for Pitbull Flower Power in many ways. Also, it made me feel like a badass. Did you have that idea already, or was that something that you came up with once um, Wet Dog kind of took off? I was on a roll in 2013, 2014. I shot a lot of projects and I was just going through the list of like, all right, next, I want to do a project to help shelter dogs get adopted. I love it. And, and then really it was because I was afraid of pit bulls and I, was, I didn't know them well, but I knew the media stories and I would see them in the shelter and be like, oh my God, these dogs are scary. Like they're powerful, they're strong, they jump all over my, my, my set. They want to like, <laughs> they launch at me to give me kisses and I don't want them in my face. You know, mm-hmm. I had a lot of prejudice and apprehension around these dogs. So 
I think I decided, you know, I could do black dogs. I could do senior dogs. There was a, I had a bunch of ideas, but I figured I'm going to focus on pit bulls first. And it's only once I started the project that I really started digging into their story. And I realized how many were euthanized in America alone and all over the world, really. And it really like hit me. Wow, this is a project that has so much more depth and meaning. Uh, and yeah, and then it was just kind of a perfect recipe where everything came together, like beautiful photos, a controversial, you know, subject matter, me trying to figure out my feelings about it all. And, and it went viral. Like if I thought Wet Dog was viral, Pitbull Flower Power was a hundred times yeah, more viral. That's a passionate community. I realized there's a huge community of in the rescue community, but also Pitbull lovers and Pitbull families who have been abused by by all these myths and legends that yep. we've built around these dogs. And for decades, these families have suffered. They've suffered prejudice by lawmakers, insurance companies, you know, buildings. So they really have been go through a lot for decades. And I think finally they found like they had a voice and I would get a lot of message from people telling me like, thank you for showing my dog the way I see my dog. Mm -hmm. I think it means so much more because you didn't love pitbulls in the beginning. So you're like, you're the example of what we always try to do to, to kind of, to, to kind of get people on our side and say, listen, like you're just, you just don't know yet. You haven't been immersed into the pitbull world to know how wonderful they are. So I think Pitbull flower power means that much more because it kind of, it kind of, you put yourself out there to change the way that you felt and look at it. Like, look what you've done because you changed the way that you initially thought. Right. And I think that also made me a more balanced voice maybe in the community mm -hmm. because I wasn't buying into the whole nanny dog bullshit. Excuse <laughs> my French. But, you know, like I, I hated both uh, extreme side of the conversation. Not hated. That's a strong word. But I think the full spectrum of that pitbull conversation, you know, mm -hmm. you have the haters, the lovers and and on both sides, you have people that are almost fanatics, mm -hmm. you know, about it. Yeah. About it. So I was more in the middle because I was like, you know, I can see both sides of the arguments. And now let's dig into the numbers and the facts and the science and educate myself and meet, you know, thousands of pit bulls in shelters. So pit bulls that have been completely abused and neglected, you know, dogs that have been shot, raped, uh, fought, you know, dogs. I've met dogs from all walks of life. And um, and that gave me like access to such a, a big uh um, what's the word? Not a collection, but you know, assortment, I guess, yeah. of pit bulls. Uh, and I've seen dog fighters who who were able to or fighting dogs. I mean, who were able to uh, become friends with other dogs and live with other dogs. I've seen dogs who have been horrifically abused and neglected uh, become amazing pet companions. I've seen stray dogs become therapy dogs. You know, I've seen it all really over the years, um, and so. Not only was I kind of a moderate voice in the debate and being able to see both sides of the story, um, but also I have compiled and gathered so many firsthand stories of, of dogs mm -hmm. that I think now I have, I have so much to share. And I've already shared a lot in, in the book I published, the Pitbull Flower Power book. Love it. Uh, but there's so many more stories I want to share. And I don't know how, like social media is not enough. So I... I'm tempted to do another book, but it's a really big undertaking. I just want these stories to be heard. And there's so much we can learn from from all of these dogs. Absolutely. Stepping away from, I guess, photography for a second, 
Uh, my biggest question I think for you is, you know, going from shelter to shelter, cause you've been in a lot over the years, um, in your opinion, what do you think we can do differently or it, it, there could be more of that you see since you're going from all these different shelters, what stands out to you in terms of what could change to be better down the road? Oh, that's a really, really big question. I think for me, you know, I've worked with rescue groups uh, that don't have a physical facility and operate on foster networks. Mm -hmm. I've worked with physical shelters from high intake shelters to boutique shelters, you know, that select, you know, the dogs that they yeah. want to have. Boutique, uh, that's a to, nice word to use. <laughs> yeah, fancy, super fancy shelters uh -huh. that, you know, cost millions of dollars to build. I've seen rural shelters, you know, in, in, in the middle of Alabama who struggle. So I've seen it all. Um, I think when I talk to people, like in my neighborhood, everybody got, gets puppies, and especially during COVID-19, yes. and they all get their puppies from breeders. I mean, most people. And it's always something doodle, you know, labradoodle, uh -huh. schnibbidoo doodle, like whatever doodle. And the arguments I hear from people often is that they went to a rescue first, but the process was too intense, and they gave up. Or they applied, never heard back, and gave up. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a big disconnect between, you know, and of course, a lot of these people, they try once and then they give up, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and then they go to a breeder. I think it's also an excuse that a lot of people use because if really you want to adopt, then you make it happen. Absolutely. I'm sorry, but you can find all the breeds you want in shelters. Of course, if you want a Labradoodle, it might be a little harder to find than, you know, a Terrier mix or a little mutt, mm -hmm. but they are out there. Absolutely. Um, but I also think that there is an argument to be made because I've seen rescues and shelters that have extensive um, adoption applications. Um, like me, I don't know that I would want a background check on me if I wanted to adopt a dog. Right. Like I, very invasive. It's, it's, it's very, it's a very invasive procedure, except if you go, you know, to city shelters, usually they almost hand out dogs. I mean, you yeah, know, it's very different. Shelter, I think some, very... some shelters take advantage of the fact that they have all these applications and they kind of go a little crazy with it. I have one client right now. She's got a purebred German shepherd and uh, she was like, you know, I tried to adopt. I tried for five months. She said, everybody was so rude to me when I right. was trying to adopt. And I was like, nobody needs that. Why are we being rude? Like people are it's trying to adopt tough. animals. <laughs> But at the same time, like I hear the stories of the shelter worker and they have to deal with so much crap all Absolutely. day long on top of the stress of taking care of animals mm -hmm. and the medical you know, issues and animals that have behavioral issues. It's a lot already. And so, again, we're asking people who are there to care for the animals to also have people's skills, which is not a given. Yep, absolutely. And on top of that, it's not just people's skills. You have to be able to handle crazies. Because people are demanding, and I think oh, yeah. a lot of people, when they want to adopt, or they feel like I'm here to save a life, <laughs> and they feel like they want to be treated right. like kids. yeah, like royalty. Yes, like royalty. Like oh my god, you're doing such a favor. Please, you know, take you know a look around. Uh -huh. We'll do. We'll roll the red carpet for you. And now you have to be humble in the process. And yeah. um, so I think it's a very complex situation that we locked ourselves in where we've raised the standards for adoption because of course when you invest money and time and energy into animals you want to make sure they go to a great home at the same time we have to be more flexible if we want to continue expanding mm -hmm. you know the adoption movement like i there was a shelter in, in texas that i visited once and they had a dog that had been there for two years because he was not good with other dogs nobody wanted that dog and then 
somehow they were able to adopt that dog to a homeless man. And that man would have never passed any adoption application in any shelter or rescues I've ever met. Yeah. You know? I have so many questions right now. <laughs> yeah. So they took a chance and they were like, you know what? We're just going to go with it. And so the man and the dog love each other. Uh, when the man has to go to a human shelter, you know, unfortunately, dogs are not allowed there. So mm -hmm. he has to leave his dog in the street. So usually he would leave him with a friend or whatever. And the dog would tend to run away, be picked up by animal care and be brought up to the shelter. And the shelter would be like, oh, we know that dog. We'll, we'll keep him while the guy, you know, until the guy comes back. And then the guy would come back, pick up his dog. And, and that was that. So it was a commitment. Yeah. It was a community effort. Um, but at the end of the day, that dog was loved, cared for, and happy, and Absolutely. living a life that is worth way more than a life wasted away in the cage. 100%. You already know this because you met Jamie in, was that 2015? No, 2016. We got Pudge. 2016. 2016. That's right. Four years this year. You came to the Monmouth County SPCA, and you met Jamie. You took the photos of Pudge. Yeah, it was like, what, photos. like three weeks old? Oh. Yeah, she was about three weeks old. It was right <laughs> after the Howell hoarding case. Um, I didn't get to meet you. I think I was just working in the back that day. You were. You know, we've been through it. What it, what's expected of shelter workers and how difficult it is to please everybody, please your superiors, please mm. the public, and especially the public that isn't interested in coming in and adopting your animals. They're mm. more interested in let me catch them doing something wrong. Yeah, scrutinizing them on, face, on Facebook. Yeah, right. I I will never understand that whole. That's a whole nother topic for another day. Yeah. And I think also, you know, what what has created an even more complicated conversation is the no-kill movement, which uh, basically I, for, for your listeners that might not know, the no-kill movement is about, you know, we're not going to euthanize animals um, for lack of space or resources. Mm -hmm. And we're going to basically keep animals alive until they get adopted as long as they are not, you know, in, in critical medical condition mm -hmm. or right. an absolute danger to humans. Yes. Right. So we've reduced the amount of euthanasia thanks to that, um, you know, that whole uh, program. The no-kill movement, though, I think has created consequences that were uh, very complicated to navigate nowadays. Um, first, not all shelters are equipped to follow all the no-kill guidelines mm -hmm. because it requires to do a lot of span nurturing and like working with communities. When I go to that rural shelters in Alabama, they don't have resources. The director herself is not even getting a salary. Yeah. They don't have money. They don't, they don't, they can't even afford to spare and neuter their own dogs in the shelter. Mm -hmm. When I visited them, none of the males were neutered. Later, I actually was able to raise money and, and they were able to neuter all the males that they had. But and on top of that, because it was a, a shelter, a municipal shelter that had been there for years and years and years, there was this rumor in town that this was the kill shelter because it used to be the pound, basically. Right. And they couldn't shake off that reputation. And so I would go in town and, and I was at a restaurant for lunch or whatever. And I would say, oh, yeah, I'm working with that shelter. And they were like, oh, I would never adopt from them because they kill animals there. That makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense because every shelter kills animals, okay? But we need to be very clear with this. And whether you kill, you know, only a handful a year or thousands of years, at mm -hmm. the end of the day, like, it is impossible to work in the rescue community and not have to euthanize animals at some point. Yep. It would never happen. It wouldn't work for all the other dogs. Like, it just, there there needs to be steps you take to keep keep in the green and well, keep moving forward. I've, I've said it before in this podcast, any shelter that has a 100% live release rate 
is is a liar is doing one of or <laughs> probably doing both of these things one they're not open admission so they're not accepting right. any animal and two if a dog is deemed that where it needs to be euthanized for medical or behavioral reasons they're probably pushing it off onto another shelter where the euthanasia will then take place it's still got it's still going on i'm, I'm very upset about a, a shelter in particular here that i has been years that i'm like oh should i expose them should i not i'm not into that you know, backlash, social media controversy. But there's a major shelter in, in the region here who is claims to be the first no-kill organization around here. And what they do is they don't take their animals back. So when people adopt from them, if they have any issue and need to return the animal, which every other shelter does, mm-hmm. these guys won't take them back. What? And I've followed some legal? of the cases. Of course I, it is. I mean, oh I God. thought... Yeah, I thought, wait, that can't be legal. But it is if you, you know, if you're not mandated by the city and you're not an yeah, open intake, uh, open admission shelter, then you do whatever that you want. And so these guys, you went, you go on their website and it says, first, no kill of the nation or whatever. But of course it is because first they bring truckloads of puppies from the south and from all over I know, the country. I'm not going to yeah. say it, but I think I know who this is. They hand out puppies like like cupcakes to anybody that <laughs> wants a puppy. Yeah. And then when the puppy grows to be to have issues, they don't take them back. Yeah. I've met people at the dog park near me because a lot of people adopt from them who told me, yeah, my, my puppy had parvo or like horrible <gasps> diseases. Oh my God. And it cost me thousands of dollars to save that dog. And when I contacted that shelter for help, they were like, dodging my calls and wow. nobody followed up and i told up. them like at least let the litter know because i knew he had come in a whole truck of puppies so there are organizations that are so incredibly re- irresponsible and to to add to what you're saying like either they pick and choose the dogs they get or you know they pass on heavy medical case to other organizations or simply they don't take animals back. So you can be the first no-kill shelter of the nation if you never take your animals back. That particular organization, I'm, I'm very riled up now. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's okay. okay. We enjoy that it. Let's do this. <laughs> now let's get raw because that's that's what people I mean, need to know these types of things. Yeah, that organization brought dogs from Thailand. And one of their dogs w- was returned. And of course, they wouldn't take that dog back. So now that dog has been sitting in a cage at a municipal municipal shelter on Long Island. Um, I don't That's know the latest. It's possible she got adopted, but she it was a month when I when I heard about her. She'd been waiting for months. So that shelter went out of their way to bring a dog from Thailand and then just turn their back on her. Like, oh, you're not our problem anymore. We are no kill. Woohoo. Life is great. Yeah. So they are... It goes back to what you were just saying before, how just because you're in animal welfare doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good person. Right. And I think a shelter that's... I think people who want to adopt an animal um, should be made aware of that and make sure that in the contract, in the adoption contract, they have an option to return the animal. There is absolutely no reason for a shelter to refuse taking an animal back. Um, At the end of the day, of course, we want animals to stay with their adopters. That's the end goal. But at the same time, you can't expect people to take a chance on difficult dogs without having the option of bringing the dog back if things don't work out. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've seen over the years, because I've been doing this for almost 10 years now, I've seen dogs that I photographed years ago being returned. And it's heartbreaking and nobody wants this. But at the end of the day, you know, those animals have a true family with their shelter system. And it's important for them to be able to come back to that same organization or that same shelter they came from. Yes. Because that's going to be their constant. That's going to be their one place when everything else fails. And so, yeah, I'm really disgusted by that particular shelter. Ugh. 
It's almost like never driving your car like your entire life and saying, I'm the best driver in the world because I've never been in a car accident or got right. a ticket. It's like, well, you never drove. <laughs> yep. We've never had such a better driver ever it's, in the world. It's crazy. It's, it's sad. <laughs> and you're absolutely right that yeah. the shelter becomes that constant. And if they start shelter hopping, it's only going to speed up the process of an emotional breakdown. And then, and then they're looking at euthanasia or they'll just end up yeah. in a shelter that's going to euthanize them after seven days. Yeah, and, and shelters get backlash for, for euthanasia and all that stuff. But especially social media can be ruthless because people have a very romanticized idea of what it means to rescue an animal and what it takes. I mean, I work with rescues who spend 20 grand, you know, in medical care for a dog to bring these dogs back to life. And that's another point where I'm very passionate about this subject. I feel like cities should be responsible for these medical cases. And in a city like New York, what we see is that a lot of these difficult medical cases like broken legs or spinal injury or disease that are very advanced end up at the city shelter when people can't you know, afford the vet bills or don't want to be bothered, whatever, whatever the case is. And the city shelter doesn't have money for these dogs. So you have dogs that can sit in a cage, sick, injured, in horrible conditions, and there's nothing the shelter can do for them, or very little. Right. So the, the, the best hope is that another shelter or private rescue is going to pull that animal mm -hmm. and take on the medical cost for it. How is that even a thing? I'm sorry, but if, if the city is here to provide a safe space for all animals, either they need to do better spay and neuter campaign and reduce the amount of animals that are out there, or they need to really give the resources needed to their city shelter to take care of this. Why, why does it fall back on private citizens to do fundraising and to cover vet bills, you know, for all day, 20, every 30, day? 000. Yeah, all day, every day. Do you think it's just everyone's just kind of skating by like the city in itself? They're just kind of brushing over it? I mean, I don't know enough. And, and I have a lot of respect, you know, for the ACC and I've worked with them before. I, they are in an impossible situation and their numbers are getting better. But again, you know, it's also a weird math because this kind of shelter can only achieve the no-kill numbers, which is an, what, 92% live release, release or something? I forgot I think what the threshold be, is. Let me see. Let me confirm. I thought it was the the percentage oh, that are euthanized. Like you have to be no, under it's that. No, it's a live release. You have to I hit a 90-something percent live release rate. I think it's 92 or something. In any case, the only way a shelter like the ACC is going to be able to achieve these numbers is because there are private rescues and shelters pooling all the cases that would otherwise die in their care. Mm -hmm. They just don't want to deal with it, so they're just waiting somebody else to come and grab them. I mean, I don't know that it's an intentional... They work really hard with their shelter, with their partners, mm -hmm. their rescue partners. Um, I don't know that it's an intentional, like, I don't want to put bad intent, you know, behind this. Yeah. But the math is, the truth is, the fact is that they could never achieve those dive release numbers if you ha didn't have private citizens who run rescues, who are willing to take on these cases yeah. and then raise the money with private citizens, you know, pitching in their GoFundMe campaign or whatever and cover vet bills and... And also vets giving them discounts, you know, like the, the entire community takes responsibility for these cases, where really it should be the city, in my opinion. It is 90% live release. Uh, 90%, as a there you go. benchmark for no-kill status. Um, I mean, it's just not, and, and again, you know, the no-kill movement was pushed on the ACC because it was certainly announced that New York was going to be, you know, a no-kill city years ago. And right. nobody had asked the ACC their opinion in the matter, and they were not equipped to reach those numbers. 
because they receive about 80 animals every day, all year they, round. They would probably wow. need to uh, multiply their amount of kennel space by like 10. And even then, I'm sure the animals would eventually catch up. But I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's of course, because, you know, the more space you create, the more animals you take in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of absolutely. It's a catch. You know, too. it kind of works that way for yeah, some reason. I absolutely. Mean, uh, but but yeah, it's they they were put in an impossible situation, and they've done their best, and they've done amazing. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it wouldn't be possible without private rescues and and shelters, and like in and that's a really sad. There's millions of dollars that are being spent on medical care, and you know, bringing dogs back to life, and all that stuff. Like it's. Huh, it's a lot. And then you have the other side of the, the metal, which is dogs who sit in cages for years. Like I've met dogs who had been in a cage for 10 years in a shelter. Like that's crazy seven, eight to me. Years. Yeah, it's a lifetime. That's more, it's a that's lifetime just a waiting. a big part of their life. I think the longest length of stay that I saw was Alize, who's, Alize, who's yeah. also one of your models. Um, how long was she in for? She was in for almost four years. It might have been a it little have, over four years. It might have been. But uh, do you remember Alize? She was there. Yeah, actually made course. the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she made the book. The story is in the book. So now she's with um, our friend Sandy. She's also a client of ours for dog walking. So oh, we'll great. stay over when um, Sandy and uh, her husband go away. And Alze's just, she's quirky, let me tell you that. But she's such a good dog. And it's just crazy that she was there for that long. I mean, I just helped Roger get adopted from Alabama. And he waited seven years. Oh, my God. Mostly because he he shouldn't live with all the dogs like he can get a little pissy when when they get all up in mm-hmm. his face yeah so no rescue partners wanted to pull a dog like this because these dogs tend to clog the system because nobody wants to adopt them or it's it's more challenging especially yeah. in cities and so that poor roger waited seven years and he's so people friendly and it was by a twist of events amazingly he actually was adopted uh, through my instagram by one of my followers who lives just a few blocks away from me so oh, for the first you. time, Neighbors. I know I was able to go and see him. So I, I went to see him a few days ago. That's awesome. Um, what what I want to touch on, because yes. what you said, like he's he was sitting there for seven years. And I mean, not necessarily not necessarily dog aggressive. He's just not a fan of dogs being in his face, which I don't blame you. I mean, I don't like it either. Someone was in my face. So what my thing is, um, is. He was sitting there for that long. Did he have any training whatsoever? And this is the thing that obviously I'm the trainer here. So I, I always go back to this. These dogs are sitting there. Are they receiving the resources, training of any sort to kind of get him to be more comfortable around dogs? He's there for seven years. There's so much that can be done in that amount of time, in my opinion. But I know a lot of these, especially uh, in, the, in the southern regions, they don't have those resources to actually immerse these dogs in the type of training that they need to get over these humps which it's it's totally possible right so when i photographed roger the first time at that shelter it was 20 i want to say uh wait what year 14 15 oh 16 i think 2016 probably so i went in alabama in that tiny little rural shelter they had over 150 dogs and they are hardcore no kill they would even keep dogs that, in my opinion, 
you know, yeah. might be a liability and mm-hmm. maybe these would be candidate for humane euthanasia if there's such a thing. But so they really hardcore no kill. And they had zero money. And like I said before, none of their dogs were spayed and neutered. And like, it's just such a shitty, you know, situation. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of dog fighting in the area. So whenever they had a dog that had dog uh, reactivity or anything like that, they wouldn't even dare advertising those dogs publicly because they were so terrified that bad people were going to adopt them. Gotcha. So okay. That makes it, more they sense. They were really stuck in a weird situation. After my visit, and I, I went there with my friend Erin of Susie's Senior Dogs, and she's the one who introduced me to them, and she's doing awesome, awesome work f- to get senior dogs adopted. So we worked together with that shelter. And after our visit, I got an email from the director, and it was very emotional. And she said, you know, your visit with Erin like, really made us realize that we hadn't given our dog our dogs a fair chance and that we were just letting them waste away basically because we thought we're doing our job keeping keeping them safe and so after our visit i think and and seeing that people cared about them cared about their dogs Mm -hmm. cared about the the shelter being set up for success i think it it emboldened them and it gave them like a new sense of purpose and they partnered with a local uh, dog training uh, organization that helps basically uh, trains shelter dogs with play groups and um, and things like this. Yes. And so a couple of years later, I asked them, like, if you had money, what would be your top dream? And they said, we would love to have a playground for our doggies where we could have like, you know, like a swing set that is um, repurposed to mm-hmm. serve like dog training. Yeah. And I was like, how much do you need for this? And they were like, oh, it's a lot. It's like $1,500. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I can raise this in five seconds on Instagram. <laughs> yes, you can. So I did uh, do a fundraiser for them. And we ended up raising, I think, almost 15 grand, which oh covered spay and neutered and like a bunch of things. Yeah. But so they built that playground. And then some of their dogs who were shut down and aggressive and just like really difficult to manage and, and were borderline, you know, going to be euthanized. Um, actually turned around and dogs got adopted. And so they really step up their games. I just know that shelters like this one are all over the country. And you have more and more organizations that offer training for shelter dogs and things like that. There's really a movement, I think, that's happening. But I don't know that they're reaching everyone. And I don't know, again, like how, you know, a training company needs to be sustainable. And you can't just train shelter dogs for free and Mm -hmm. so it's a matter of teaching the shelter staff you know how to do that there is uh, dogs playing for life uh, based in florida this organization that basically teaches shelters to organize playgrounds and let dogs play together Mm -hmm. because they realized dogs they figure it out and sometimes it's about taking a chance. Yes. I mean, of course, you don't want to take a Thank crazy you, chance, take a chance <laughs> and just overseeing and provide that safe space where you oversee the play group mm-hmm. and let dogs figure it out because they can overcome so much. Uh, they know how to talk to each other and what makes them crazy is the isolation. Yes. And it's also like with children, if you are a hovering parent, something's going to go wrong. You need to right. be there in case something goes wrong, but you're not hovering over them, watching their every move, tugging the leash, this and that. Like It needs to be on their own terms and you just watch it all play out. You you learn each dog and how they play and who they like and what they don't like and and just go with it. And just the more socialization they get, the better that they learn how to communicate with each other. But if we isolate them, of course they're going to hate each other because they're never together. So obviously it must be a weird thing. There's always barriers between them. 
And, and, right. I, and Always I can't berries, stand and that. I love, this is something that I really want to do. Obviously we have our hands full with like all the, I mean, you probably yeah. understand all the projects that you want to do. You should see our yeah. idea board in our office right yeah. now. It's just, I'm like, when am I, I'm going to die before these are all done. But right. one of my things is, is offering a program um, that's affordable to shelters where John and I go in and teach the staff how to train the dogs, how to um, do an appropriate, safe doggy play group how to do that the correct way how to how to um desensitize a dog with counter conditioning to like other dogs on a pair walk where you're not putting them in an uncomfortable situation you're giving them a little bit of stress but you're also giving them positive reinforcement treats praise love the entire time until they finally realize okay this is not a scary situation this is actually a good thing repetitively you're with these dogs every day when you're an animal attendant like you're there with them at least five days a week if not more but the numbers, though, I mean, it's so hard for these shelters. Like, imagine that Alabama shelter with 150 dogs. Let's say probably 60 of them had dog mm-hmm. reactivity of some kind. Yes. And it's just four old ladies, you know, <laughs> and maybe one dude cleaning the kennels. Like, we're asking so much yeah. of of shelter workers all over the country. It's, Absolutely. it's insane. We're asking them to be caregivers and medical experts and, and all these things and training and, like, it's a lot. And so they've already think, got compassion fatigue on top of that. They already have compassion fatigue. And I've seen the worst case of compassion fatigue in, in the horrible shelters I've visited. Like I, I've, I witnessed their pain. I witnessed how tired they are. And when they get attacked by the public for this and that, it, it just makes it worse. Like mm-hmm. I think mostly shelters need more support from the communities. We need more you know, photographers helping. We need more dog trainers offering to help when everybody has their hands full, we agree on that. Yes. But I think everybody has a skill that they can offer. And we also need to um, do it in a way that doesn't add pressure to the shelter, but rather we're like, we're here to do a job. We're here to serve. We swallow our pride a little bit if we have to, but yes. not to the point of being abused, obviously. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you volunteer with an organization, you have to find, a, find an organization that works for you that uh, is on the same page that you have good vibes with and like you know so it's it's also like not a chore but it, it can it's kind of fun for you to work with yes. that particular organization and commit to to a regular schedule like i know a lot of people want to volunteer with shelters but most people are kind of flaky yes i 100 percent agree and so at some point like i when i started i took it as a job as if these shelters were paying me a lot of money mm-hmm. you know but i was the one paying for everything <laughs> you know paying <laughs> yes. for my planes my hotel my that's everything. animal welfare but, for you yeah but i always treated it as a job and like they were very high value clients meaning i'm on time i i do what i say i deliver on you know the assets on time i treat everybody with respect yeah. i try to take the least energy and time from them like it's so important, um, and yeah. So anyway, I lost my train of thought a little bit here, but that's <laughs> yeah, okay. To <laughs> that's totally but training, all right. I think I love the idea that you know, creating those training packages and and workshops or whatever that can empower people. At the end of the day, like it takes a lot. I've seen shelter workers who think they do right, but have the wrong tools. Like I've visited shelters where. The handlers were so rough on their dogs, like yanking, you know, the yeah. collar and and it made me so uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh my God, it would take so little, so little adjustment for this team to 
try different tools, have access to different tools and, and create a different environment for the animals. Yep. So there's a lot that can be done and I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys end up doing. And we it's need in the more. Works, that's more, for sure. I need to do it. It's. De- I think that's definitely top on my list of things to do because um, obviously, yes, we have a business and we have a house to pay for and a child and stuff. So obviously money is, you know, there. But when it comes to how we got into this in the first place is because John and I both had such a passion for rescue in general. And um, when it when it comes down to it, the the shelters, the dogs that need to be adopted, the ones that are missing out on the training and the socialization, those are the dogs that keep me up at night. And those are the ones I will continue to keep thinking about. So when it comes to that, I need to eventually make this program and make it available to shelters. It's got to be scalable. That's the biggest hurdle. Mm -hmm. Right. I also feel like sometimes when we think about projects like this, we think about, oh, wow, the big picture, the end game, it needs to be perfect. Sometimes maybe it's all about having a Zoom session with one of the workers at the shelter that's like, hey, I need a little bit of guidance. How do I do this? Yeah. You know, like sometimes we don't need to put the, what is it in English? The cart before the horse? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yep. Sometimes it's starting with small. Like, yeah. Because when I started taking photos in, in shelters, for example, um, I had never done studio photography before. I didn't know how to use a light. I didn't know how to use a backdrop, like all these things. And I'm like, ugh. I didn't wait till I knew these things before I booked my first shoot. I went in and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm such an amateur. And I was ashamed of every photo that came out of that shoot. And it kicked me in the butt to figure out, all right, so what did I learn from today? What Mm -hmm. do I need next? And then I signed up for a class that would help me acquire the skills I needed. And then from the second shoot, my signature style was already there because I had learned and I had acquired the skills. So sometimes you know, people always tell me, where do I begin? I want to help. I want to volunteer. I want to, I hope one day I win the lottery and I, I open a sanctuary and I'm like, you don't need the lottery. Right. You can start today with yeah. one phone call, one email, one, one something, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't even need an expensive camera. You could take photos with your phone. You could take photos. You could do drawings of dogs. There's a bunch of kids here on Long Island at, at one of the shelters I work with who paint portraits of the dogs and cats who are for adoption and then they put them in the lobby and those portraits are so incredibly cute and these kids are like 10 you know 10 years old and Aww. and that's what they do and yeah. so if they can do it like anybody can it doesn't have to be perfect it doesn't have to be well thought out yeah it just needs to be now and here just do it i think it's the same thing with dog training um i mean obviously in the beginning when anybody becomes a certified dog trainer they're they're not teaching you how to deal with guarding or dog issues or reactivity or anything like that it's really just basic obedience and um learning you know potty training jumping all that good stuff um so it's it's very um right it's it's very uh I guess it's elementary, yeah. well, uh, elementary, but the whole process is evolutionary. Yeah. If you wait till you're perfect, you'll never do it. And that's right. in the beginning. If there was a client that came to me with had that, that had a problem outside of my comfort zone at that moment, I said, you know what? I haven't done this before, but I'd really like to take a crack at it if you'd let me. And right. that is how I learned to be the behavioral trainer that I am now because I took chances and I learned these dogs. Every dog is different. Every 
their backgrounds are different, their family life is different, and it's just figuring out what's going to make this dog feel better and not be the way that it is in these in these situations by trial and error. And that's still what it is sometimes. There are some clients that come to me, and in the beginning when I'm hearing the story, I'm a little bit stumped, but I'm like, no, nah, I need to get to get to know your dog better. I need to see it. I need to I need to ask you. 20 million questions before I give you what we're going to, what we're going to do our jumping off point, because there's so much to learn. And if I just said, no, I don't know how to do that, that who knows where that dog's going to end up. The, the, the family's going to have to go to a behaviorist. They're going to pay $500 just for a consult. And that's, and it may not happen. That family be like, oh, that's out of my, my price range. And then the dog just sits there and gets worse. Um, I mean, so I also think that we have to keep in mind that every dog is an individual. Mm-hmm. And even if the symptoms might look the same from a dog to another, the cause, the root of the problem might be different. The dynamic between the dog and the owner or the family members, you know, might have something to do with it. Like there's just so many layers and we have to remember that dogs are unique and they have their own traumas and they have their own PTSD sometimes and they have their own emotions and challenges and dreams and hopes. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a full I say being. this all the time. I literally, they have, there are so many variables that make a dog a dog. And we need to pull back those layers. They're like onions. And, and they're, and I always say to my clients in the beginning, I'm going to give you homework. If it's not working, you need to tell me, and then we're going to switch to something different. That doesn't mean that your dog is broken. That means that whatever we chose to start with isn't working and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Every dog is different. So, um, we just take it day by day and the positivity that I need my clients to have is huge. I tell them from the beginning, whatever woes, whatever frustration that you start out with, with me, with this dog tonight, after I leave here, you need to start fresh. Like this dog is brand new to you tomorrow. And then, then we start from there. And you're basically creating a common language, you know, between the owner and the dog. It's like, Sometimes it pains me. I have like an ache in my heart to think how misunderstood dogs are. And we've, you know, for millennia, they've been with us and we haven't really made the effort to really understand that. We mm-hmm. basically just expected them to fit in our mold, whatever we wanted from them. Yep. You know, and that little box we created for them. Yep. But what about dogs? Like it's so, we know so little and it, it kills me. And I think there's, there's been like training schools also in the past decades that have done a lot of, like they've created uh, a lot of tools and we've made progress, but some have been so misguided too. And mm-hmm. like the whole alpha thing and the, oh God, the alpha nuts. role and all these things that are so destructive and really stem from us thinking we understand what this is about and really knowing nothing because we haven't been listening. Mm-hmm. Can we just listen to our dogs and to what they're trying to tell us? Absolutely. This is what I say to my clients all the time. I, John, what's the one thing I say? I, I always say, I'm here to bridge the gap of communication between you and your dog because you're not right. understanding them. They're trying to tell you what they need and you're not meeting the expectations. When you take on a dog, you you are vowing to that dog that you are going to listen and give them everything that they need, whether it's mental stimulation, physical exercise, um, safety, uh, feeling feeling like they're safe in your home. Um, you're you're taking an oath to love them, and if if you're missing the mark, they're going to tell you. And that doesn't mean that you need to muscle them into listening to you. It should be a mutual respect. There should no be I'm alpha. Listen to me just because I say so. You earned right. nothing. You earned nothing to make to let this dog know that it needs to listen to you. That you you don't deserve it. So we need to get to that point where that dog feels comfortable with you for you guys to have this mutual relationship. And I just, it drives me nuts to see the way that I get to some clients and 
they're like, oh, we had a trainer before and they told us to do this. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so, like you said before, yeah. it's destructive. Like destructive. It's, yeah. it's so negative. And I'm like, we are, we are training family dogs. I don't train police dogs. I don't train army dogs. I am here to have this dog fit into your family life for you guys to just be in love with each other. And that's it. Right. I also, sorry, I'm just, oh, Mac. sorry, my doggy. It wouldn't be a real episode if there wasn't a dog bark on it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I also equate that to, like, when I think about the creative process, for example, to bring it back to something human that people might understand better. You know, if you're a child and you're creative, like, for example, I was super creative. And for me, I had a father, for example, that was very critical or when you have teachers or people around you that are critical, like, oh, what did you use red here? Oh, no, don't, don't hold your pen like this. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, no, that paper is wrong or whatever it is. Yeah. You don't foster a safe space for the child to be able to express themselves. But then you have the grandma that maybe sets a table, pulls all the paint out, the papers, the things. She sets everything up for you, a safe space. And then she says, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to be great. And then maybe when you're like, oh, I'm not sure I know how to draw this, she, maybe she, she shows you how, or, you know, she guides you. Yeah. And, and it's about creating that safe space that allows expression and allows a true connection to happen. And I think with, with dogs, it's this, it's not about being the boss or the alpha. Mm-hmm. It's about, let me create a safe space where you don't have to worry about the things that I'm worrying about. You know, I will take care of the cars. I will take care of the other dogs that are crossing, you know, the other yeah. sidewalk. Yeah. I will Trust take me. care of I have your everything back. else. And I have your back. And all you have to do is is be you. And, you know, and, and that's, that's such a beautiful thing. And I, I wish people saw the whole dynamic between dogs and humans like that more. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about the collar and the leash and how it gets in the way so much of our relationship between, you know, with our doggies. Of course, in cities, I live in Brooklyn, you know, there's no other choice. You have to have a collar mm-hmm. and a leash. Um, but, you know, when I go to on a hike and I'm able to have my dog off leash, I see him spread his wings and like the collar and the leash is also it's a beautiful way to create freedom for dogs who need that tether. Like I'm not saying it's all bad. Obviously the leash is also freedom. It can be both, but it's also a way to infantilize our dogs so much because it's like, no, don't eat that. No, don't say hi to that dog. No, Mm -hmm. don't grab. No, don't pee on this. Like we keep, you know, using that leash as a mean of controlling. Yes. And I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. It infantilizes our doggies. And when I see mine being free and he runs in the forest and now the more we go, the more he walks further away in front of us. And obviously we try, we make sure it's safe, but you know, and he has a really good recall. So, mm-hmm. you know, all I have to do is say touch you, and because you've done, run back. Oh, you say touch. Done, I yeah, love I've you, Sophie. <laughs> ground rules. Yeah, yeah. I love oh, it. I love that comment. Yeah. The but you put the work my in. Lifesaver. You put the work into your dogs. So right. You, you, trust him when and you, you only do it on hikes you know where you're at and it's not an ego thing I think a lot of people want to do off-leash stuff when their dogs aren't trained and I, and I always say you didn't earn it your dog's gonna right. get hurt and and I, and I agree with what you said about we're always controlling our dogs with our leashes and stuff we're always yanking them and pulling them over controlling yes and we're always um like you said don't eat that don't look at that dog you don't do this because you're because we're so scared that they're going to do something wrong and we're so worried about what everybody else thinks about our dog that we don't know what we're portraying to our dogs so like if every single time your dog is walking down the street and all of a sudden you see another person with a dog and you cross the street you just positively reinforce your dog to think that dogs are bad 
because you yep. you literally create distance every single time they're around and you didn't say anything but you led them away with their leash and probably tugged them and they're like oh I mean, okay i'm i'm a little guilty because no matter how much i know these things and i've tried to be very conscious of all this mm-hmm. mine is has gotten a little reactive sometimes and it feels random i'm trying to identify what happens i try to stay cool and calm and make sure the leash is like soft Mm -hmm. and and still sometimes he will snap at a random dog and i'm thinking you know there's also a lot that happens between dogs of communication that we are not aware of the way they look at each other the Mm -hmm. way their tail is whatever and and sometimes i'm like you know what maybe they're just not in agreement and it's okay too. Dogs don't have to love every other yeah, dog. They we need. communicate with each other. We we're not friends with everybody. You know, it's not always the friendliest communication no, between it's people. <laughs> quite the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, how often do you see people giving the middle finger while driving? Like that's like that's how we communicate oh, with each other. It's just my... ridiculous, and that's okay. You know, no one's that's tugging on our collars. Um, that's that's but... how I won my husband over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna need he to hear that story. Someone in the car is like. And I looked over, he was sitting on the passenger seat and I looked over, I'm like, oh, that guy was such an asshole. And, and he, he looked at me with like big manga, sparkly eyes, you know, like, <laughs> he oh fell my in God, love. what a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, now with your dog, with the barking, has that been since quarantine or beforehand? Oh no, he, he gets, he's all oh, mine is a, not a mess, but he's a scaredy everything. Mm-hmm. He's scared of everything. He's he's even scared of us still. Sometimes I joke with my husband, oh my God, God forbid he ever ends up like in a rescue or shelter because something happened to us. They're going to think we were beating him up. Oh, well, I've said like, the same thing about Pudge. Pudge is, Pudge is oh my wacko. Um, I mean, he's, yeah, he's scared of everything. If my elbow brushes against him when we're sitting on the sofa, he'll jump like a meter oh. up. Like, what did you do? You're trying to murder me? Yeah. So yeah, he... But I, I did do a bunch of, um, of, of videos uh, I, with a, a dog trainer, a friend of mine during confinement. And we talked a lot about the tools and what could happen. And, and I learned so much. And I think these times have been challenging for humans, but they also have been challenging for doggies. And as people hopefully will go back to normal life more and more, you know, there's a lot of isolation anxiety Oh, separation anxiety that might happen. There's a lot of new issues that might arise. And I think we all need to be prepared and we all need to help our dogs navigate this. Yes, absolutely. I think um, the children and the dogs are the ones getting the short end of the sticks on this one. In the beginning, everybody was like, oh, we're home. The dogs are loving it. But we didn't keep a normal life. We didn't leave the house at all. We didn't put them in their crates. We didn't give them space. We were around them 24-7 And now we're all starting to go back to work and they're like, wait a minute, you've been home for eight months. Something must be wrong. I need to freak out. Um, Or they haven't been socialized. so They hadn't seen any other dogs. Maybe they used to go to the dog park all the time and then eight months of nothing. And now you want them to just assimilate back into the group and you're confused why your dog is so upset and, and, you know, starting fights with other dogs is they're not comfortable anymore. They um, they're off their game. And I think that we have, you know, attributed to that. And I think we need to take baby steps to get them back where they were. Um, and we need to be, and I think this is the biggest thing, patience and understanding where a lot of people like, I don't understand why my dog is acting like this. But when I say it, they're like, well, that makes sense. But you needed to hear it. Like how you did the training sessions with your friend. You just needed to talk to somebody about what's happening and, and someone who understands and can give you feedback where you probably could, could have gotten to those assumptions on your own, but you needed to go back and forth with somebody and talk it out. 
Oh um, yes, the third, mm-hmm. of course, third pair of eye on that relationship is essential. Yes, absolutely. You need somebody from the outside point of view because it's your dog. You have emotional attachment to that dog. And people always say to me, you know, John and I go in people's houses and we're spitting knowledge and they're like, oh my God, like, how did you figure that out? I'm like, it's not my dog. So I can right. look at the dog as a whole without my emotional attachment because I hardly know this dog and just take all these pieces of information that you're giving me and putting them together and coming up with what's happening. And for, for the client, it's so hard for them because it's, it's their child basically. And it, it, you know, even that, you know, with kids, not my child syndrome, um, happens all the time. But then when someone's from the outside finally bucks up and says, listen, you got something, you got an issue here. And they're like, wow, okay, I do have an issue here. So, you know, take the blinders off and, um, you know, COVID it's just been hard. It's, it's been really hard on the dogs. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm also noticing that people more and more are interested in indoctrinating and getting the right tools f- to communicate with their doggies. Yes. Just to bring the conversation back to the rescue world and 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 shelter dogs, uh, that's one thing too that we still have so many people that view dogs as a commodity, an object, an, an extension, you know, a narcissistic Property. extension. Yeah. And it goes back to like, why do you go to a breeder? Like it's part of that conversation too. It's it's because you you don't understand dogs. You assume that oh, if I get a puppy, then the dog will be perfect because I'm going to raise him the the right way. Like all these fake narratives that we've created around dogs, I think are coming into play in in the breeder versus adoption debate and mm-hmm. all this conversation of trying to create a safer community for dogs all over the country. And how do we reduce the numbers, the span, nutrient? Like all these conversations all come back to how much do you understand of dogs? And are you ready to be like a decent human being, a decent partner to, to, to doggies? And of course, in the rescue community, we see and hear it all. And it's, it's, it's crazy. Like I, one of my neighbors got a puppy during the pandemic and they got a, a doodly thing and a fluffy thing. And um, now they're having so many issues with that dog. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me, I can't help it. There's a part of me that's like, yeah. I kind of told you so. Knew you know <laughs> that this could happen. Yeah, we need to stop the lies. And and breeders have been lying to mm-hmm. the public for so long, uh, pretending that you can breed temperament into a dog, and that is bullshit. And we need to stop that lie. We need to educate yes. people to the fact that there's no such thing. And just because your dog was from the same breeder or the same lineage and had a great temperament means all the other dogs from the same litter and, and future litter as well have the same temperament. That is bullshit. Yes. Yep. You can't apply that to humans. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, again, it comes back to every dog is, is an individual. And also once the dog is in their family, there's going to be different triggers, different situation, different environment. Uh, everything is going to be different from mm-hmm. dog to dog. But you know, every year when we see the, oh, the, the number one dog of uh, in the United States is the Golden Retriever. One more year, you know, because every year it's the same freaking dog. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but no, it's the first dog registered with the AKC. Uh-huh. So that means it's the, it's the dog that's most bought and registered amongst breeder dogs. It doesn't count the millions of dogs who are rescues, whether they were adopted in a shelter or just found in the street. How many people just you know, tell you, oh yeah, I found my dog at a gas station or whatever. Right. Like the rescue community is not just the shelter system. It's also what I call the non-rescue, you know, which is all these animals that people rescue because it's the thing you do mm-hmm. in the country, especially for example. 
uh, we need to stop the lie. It's not the golden retriever that's the most popular breed in America, in the United States. It's the only one that's it's registered. It's probably the pit bull mix, to be honest. Yeah, yes, probably. it's probably the and pit bull mix. That's, that's why it's so represented in shelters across the country, because we just have a lot of them. It's funny. Uh, I think the worst dogs, and you'll agree with me, Jay, the worst dogs that we've dealt with when in training are usually purebreds that were bought from a breeder. Yes. That, um, that have just serious issues. The German Shepherd because, puppy I was just talking about, um, she gave her a marrow bone and she just walked by her, wasn't even looking at her, it literally was walking into her bedroom, passed the dog and the dog bit her on the arm. Yeah. Like that's not a normal behavior for so a six month old. Temperament, temperament no. doesn't get passed down, but what does get passed down is genetic behavioral issues and trauma like resource guarding yes like anxiety mm -hmm. those will get passed down but Absolutely. your temperament's not going to get passed down no so we see it all the time and i there's um there's a puppy store near us i don't even they might be shut down now because of covid but i'm not sure yeah i think they went out of business thank god yes but they Ugh. we had a client come to us and they're like oh you know she's a doodle thing and i'm like where'd you get her they're like oh we got her the pup the puppy rescue that's in red bank and i'm like Oh my gosh. I'm like, puppy yes. rescue in oh, Red Bank. The There's thing. no rescue in Red Bank. What are you talking about? And they showed me it. And I, and I said, Can I see the papers? They're like, Oh, yeah, she's a rescue. She's from uh, Montana or whatever. It literally had the breeder's name on the paperwork. Yeah. What do they call them? No, they, that's a new trend. Yeah, designer, designer, designer rescue or yeah, something. Yeah, designer rescue. And I'm like, you're not a rescue. Yep. You're a puppy mill. And you, there's a no, breeder no, name is, on here. It's premium rescue, they call it. <laughs> premium rescue. It's, no, but it's crazy. I see. I, I have uh, lately a lot of Facebook page have been trying to push like commenting on my page or like posting on my page and they say puppies for adoption, all oh. breeds. And when I click on it, it's actually puppy milk. Yep. It's, it's French bulldogs. It's little doodly things. It's like all these breeds that are hundred percent puppy milk and they have so many of them. It's clear. And it's a new trend that I've noticed this past few months. So what it tells me is that first the adoption narrative is working and the education we've done around adopting is working. Also, lawmakers are, are, are starting to shift, like on the West Coast, you know, where uh, pet stalls are shut down. And now they have to, you can only basically adopt a dog. Oh, they need to bring that over here. In, in LA. Fed up. <laughs> They're trying to bring it here, too. Um, the mistake they made, though, in LA is that uh, they didn't put safeguard in place um, to make sure these dogs have to come from reputable nonprofit rescue organizations. So basically, every breeder registered as a rescue, and now is pretending, oh yeah, adopt this dog for you know four hundred dollars when it's actually uh, they bred that dog. So we we learned from that mistake, and I think in New York, uh, the the law that they were proposing actually um, had a safeguard in place against that. But these these breeder pet stores and all that they caught on 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 those things and yep. they're going to find the loopholes so it's really up to us to make sure the public understands like the difference yes so like that's my client totally say, fell for oh, that and i showed it yeah, to them on the paperwork they didn't it. even look at it i hear it all the time people who say i adopted my dog from a from a breeder even and i said well you can't use the word adoption if it was <laughs> yeah, a purchase yeah. if, no, you bought your if dog the dog was purposely created for your enjoyment you yes. know, yep. um, it's it's different than than a rescue that just takes on a litter that they found on the side of the road. You know, it's not the same. Totally thing. different. So we we still have a lot of work to do, and yes, now we, we do. have to fend for our territory a little bit, so to speak. I know because now they're they're perpetrating liars. a fraud. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're coming in on adoptions. I think that a good rule of thumb is if you're paying more than maybe six hundred dollars to adopt a puppy, and I think even six hundred is is high. 
Unless spay and neuter is high. Yeah. Some shelters will will do high price for purebreds. I think the SPCA does four fifty for puppies. Yeah, I think so too. Unless they right, usually, it. yeah, six hundred sounds like a lot of money, um, but uh, but yeah, that's definitely a sign. If you're paying a lot of money, that's wrong. If also check the social media. Is the organization like showing photos and videos of rescues? Do they follow up on the dogs? Mm-hmm. Is there like a whole story like after the adoption? Like, can you can you tell that this organization has been active and actually doing? what they say they're doing right. are they soliciting donations do they have a 501c3 all things people you need can to look do into their, their research and i think sometimes people get lazy when they're looking for a dog and they're like oh this dog just fell into my lap and it's like that's not how it happens i mean a lot of these breeders are going to register as non-profits i wouldn't be surprised because that's going to be the way they, they can survive this the shift that is about to happen so it's going to be really up to us um to to make sure and also, like, oh, stop with the French bulldogs. Can we just stop? Can we <laughs> Leave stop? them alone. Leave them alone. Can, can we stop creating dogs that can't be born naturally? Mm-hmm. That French bulldog have to have cesarean in almost 100% of the cases? Like, that is insane to me that it's one of the most popular purebred dog out there. And people don't even know that. And, like, the medical issues that these dogs come down with. Of it's, course. It's just, it's... It's torture. They can't breathe. They yeah. can't go out in the heat. They they have medical issues up up the butt, and it's just it's it's just mean. And um, yeah, they're cute, but like you don't know what you're doing to them long term. If you're a real dog lover, at some point, I think you have to respect the species, and that means you know doing your research. That means like understanding that there's a lot of abuse going on and breeding is one of the abuse. Yes. I'm not completely against 100% against breeders. Like I understand that there is a full spectrum there and I've met breeders that worked really hard at preserving ancient breeds like they the short right. Swintley, like the Mexican hairless dogs. Mm-hmm. I've done a bunch of photo series about this dog. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by it. It goes all the way back to, you know, um, Aztec cultures and all that. So it's really an ancient breed and the breeders are trying to save and maintain the breed and they're they're like archaeologists and scientists and like they're really trying to maintain a, a, a healthy, yeah. you know, group of dog, uh, dogs. Um, that, I'm okay with that. I'm okay. I understand that some people want different breeds. Like I get it. But can we stop with the doodlings and yeah. the, the French bulldogs? And well, the, sorry, the number one thing dogs. you're going to hear is I need hypoallergenic. There's there's ton of other dogs that, that can do yeah. that for you. I think it's another myth that breeders have been very successful as, at propagating, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that that article that came out a few months ago or a while back, the, the man who invented the Labrador, uh, he came out and basically saying he regrets it. Oh, wow. He, he thought he'd created the Frankenstein beast that has a lot of behavioral issues because mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been bred the wrong way. Like everybody jumped on that train and started breeding those dogs yeah. because of the hypoallergenic claim and all that. And... And he said, like, most of these dogs are, are crazy, have behavioral issues, yes. and should not be bred. Absolutely. We see it all the, the time. Creator. It's like the number one dog that we get. And they're like, our dog has severe issues. And they're like eight months old. Those are the biters. Yeah, Those are the biters. Not Those are the, the ones that, yeah, it's not the pit bulls. The pit bulls I get are, are um, leash reactive and yeah. stuff like that. Um, the, the doodles um the the designer breeds they're the garters they're the unpredictable ones that will spaz out for no good reason and and even go ahead yeah, sorry that's okay. even like if if you don't have behavioral issues which in itself is is absolutely unacceptable um 
you have things like the government, you know, I, it's, the government is, is kind of expected to be in, extinct by 2040 because it is so inbred and because the AKC and all these breeding organizations refuse to let new lines come in mm-hmm. because they're trying to preserve the line. Yeah. So basically, I don't know, you know, if, if some of your listeners are not well versed in all that, in order to create a, a pure dog like this, you have to keep a very tight gene pool. And the AKC and, and organizations like this, that's what they want. So to, to get your pedigree and your papers, you have to come from specific lineage. Mm-hmm. When you do that, you create dogs that are inbred at some point because mm-hmm. there's only just Absolutely. so much, you know. And all these dogs are getting, the Doberman is getting heart congenital disease. And now I, I talked to one organization here that is all about Doberman and they've been around for years and years and they say it's horrible a lot of the members just drop dead at like three four years old they're playing one minute the next minute they're dead because most of these dobermen have heart disease Mm -hmm. and it's very hard to to actually um uh, trace uh, to uh, what's the word diagnose uh until it's too late and the akc you know it would be easy they would they could just open the lineages a little bit so that more then I think the Doberman was made like with Dalmatian or something. There was like a mix of something. Mm-hmm. If you brought more Dalmatian, although Dalmatians are pretty inbred too, but if yes, you brought are. more of these of, of bloodlines basically into the mix, you could save these dogs and bring them back to a healthy uh, pool of And then candidate. we have a lot less uh, training needed because these dogs are not going to be losing their minds yeah. for no reason. And then yep. those dogs are going into families that weren't expecting that. They're expecting this perfect dog and then they don't want the dog anymore. And then it goes to a rescue and it gets passed around. And then we have more issues and it just, the shelters would be less overpopulated if we stopped doing what we're doing yeah. down the breeding line where it's not working out properly. And and I want to make a distinction because a lot of the people... People that are against pit bulls, their main argument is to say they were bred to fight. That's what they're good for. Therefore, you can never trust them. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about something different here. Here we're talking about inbreeding, which is which creates very unstable dogs. Yes. Um, the the pit bull characteristic, which is used by dog fighters, is their their stamina and their drive, which is dedication to a specific task. Yes. They are terrier dogs which mean once they have their ideas set on something, uh, some of these dogs, not all of them, but some of these dogs will have the tenacity to mm-hmm. pursue that thing. Yes, um, That is tweaked by dog fighters who torture dogs into it's a using those behavior. skills. It's a learned behavior of like, you starve your dog, you make them fight for resources, you mm-hmm. put them in the pit, you know, They're not you born make like them run that. on treadmill, you inject them with steroids, like you yeah. really push Yes you know, that dog in every possible way to make it what it is. Uh, there's an estimated of only like one puppy out of the litter that may have a predisposition for that type of behavior. Absolutely. And then on top of that, it, it's going to take a lot of, of torture, you know, to get a dog to that point. Right. Um, and then some dogs, and this is going to be controversial, but some dogs seem to enjoy it because it feeds into that drive that they have. And they're like, oh, okay, uh, this is what I'm supposed to do, then I'll do it, you know. And some dogs will get caught in that system. But at the end of the day, they're victims. They're victims of, of torture. And so we're not talking about the same thing here because the, the, the temperament, the characteristic that, that makes some pit bulls maybe more um, um, like having prey drive or things like this, mm-hmm. it's not 
necessarily a genetic trait. They're not dog aggressive because yeah, it's not genetics. in their DNA. It's it's a learned behavior. It's, it's manipulation. It's a learned. Or I mean, some dogs are dog aggressive. You know, when as they grow older, like it's it yes. just happens. It's a mix of nature and nurture and all that stuff. Like it's a very complicated recipe. Yeah. But I'm not. I'm not being like. Uh, I'm not living in La La Land. I've seen also dogs who were raised by shelters from the puppy and turn to be dog aggressive. Uh, is it their environment or were they always going to be dog aggressive? Like these are all questions that mm-hmm. we have yet to answer. Yeah, we I think we need way more data. Yeah, yeah I- we need more studies. We need more training. We need to understand dogs better to be able to answer those questions. I want to circle back real quick on what you said so that I want to make sure everybody understands it um, as far as the dogs actually enjoying it. Um, when we were at the SPCA in my time in law enforcement, we dealt with fighting dogs from all over New Jersey. Sometimes we'd take custody of them and the dogs that were the grand champion dogs, the winners, those were the ones that were so intense about it. And it's all that they knew that yes, they mm-hmm. absolutely enjoyed it and they didn't lose. So they didn't get hurt to the point where they were going to die. But that's all they know. They don't know what it's like to be loved. That's all that they know. That's all they can do. So that's what they do. And that's what dogs, that's the way they do process things. So it's not to be cruel. It's really just an observation. That's really all they know. So I just wanted to make sure that right. in case anybody didn't really understand what that meant. Yeah, it's. It becomes a game for them. Yes, it's. Yeah, I said it sometimes, you know, because I talk to a lot of dog trainers that work with those fighting dogs and and rescue workers. And, and so I, I may have used a shortcut here, but obviously, uh, yes. No, I have, and we absolutely said. know what you're talking about. We've yeah. seen it with our own eyes, yeah. and it's really hard for people to understand until they've seen it themselves. Right, and these dogs can still turn around. Oh, absolutely. And I've seen grand champion dogs, you know, turning around and having dog friends. Like one of the dogs I photographed from this huge fighting operation that was shut down in Canada years ago, I followed these dogs and I photographed them after they were rescued. Uh, the story is in my book, actually. Um, one of them was uh, one of the grand champion. And now he lives with like a pack of chihuahuas. <laughs> like I, I get that. photos of him <laughs> snuggled up in That's the, like the couch with the doggies. Yeah. And it, so it is, it's not a lost cause. And um, it's just like humans, again, like we're talking about also some kind of addiction. You know, it's, it's dogs who are, are rendered so vulnerable by by the torture and, and exposure to horrible things that they go through. Yeah. And then they're injected with steroids or like the way they're treated, you know, the, it creates a, an addiction system and a very self-destructive thing. And there's a lot that goes into it. I think also mental illness is something we don't talk enough about when it comes to dogs. Oh and my I've, God, I've yes. certainly met dogs. Yeah, I've met dogs. Like in my book, again, there's a story about this dog who, who ended up being euthanized because... It, it, he just he had like an uh, he was on the spectrum he had uh, a bit of an autistic uh, disorder a sound processing disorder mm-hmm. they thought was what he had and i've met dogs like this where there's just something in them that is i don't want to say broken it's it's a different yeah it's a little off. broken it's such a negative thing but it, it's just they're just not made for this world you know and and they're going to be a danger to themselves and to others. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's the only way you can release them. Uh, but we still have so much to learn. And yes. now there's more medication available. There are other things. But once you understand that dogs are sentient beings, it is normal that they would have PTSD or mental illnesses or all the right. mental afflictions that humans suffer from absolutely. as well. I have yeah. trained tons of dogs that if I could, I would get them tested because I think they absolutely had bipolar disorder. 
or PTSD. Or PTSD. We see PTSD all the time. Constant. Yeah. And yep. sometimes it's not it's not our go-to, but sometimes I will suggest like a Prozac, a fluoxetine, because I know I can see in this dog, I can see it in their face. There's something not balancing out their their chemical imbalance right. is so in my face. And I'm like, and I'm trying to tell these parents, listen, put the dog on the medication for two months. And if you don't like it, you take them off. But if you see any difference in their behavior, you know there's something going on inside that they cannot fix right now. And it's emotional. And we can do all the counter conditioning that we want. We can train like hell, which I do. And I always say when we do medication, we also train like hell. But sometimes they need a little bit of help. And um, But I would never, ever, ever suggest medication without training because it's like going... It's going to a, right. a, a, a therapist asking for medication and never following up with your therapy sessions. And never having those conversations. Yeah. And you need I'd to be work curious it to out. Hear your thoughts. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear your thought about CBD because I've ha- I have a real conscious, you know, I don't know. I'm a little torn about the whole CBD trend that mm-hmm. we are seeing everywhere. What I'm nervous about is that I see people like there's a company, a new dog CBD company that pops up every day. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, I get yep. approached a lot to do sponsored posts, and I always say no because I'm not an expert and I don't feel comfortable yeah. promoting. If you you're know, not using the product, why would you talk about it? Yeah, and also. Yeah. And I mean, my dog is skittish, so I could very well think, you know what, I'm going to try on him and see if it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. But I worry that this is becoming a crutch for a lot of dog parents out there yes. who, who like, isn't in a way a little bit to kind of put some issues dormant or to kind of it's like be a like, hey, I'm just going to drug up your, your doggy 100%. So, so you don't have to deal with it. So here's my stance on CBD. There are, I'm big on studies. There's no studies right now that show how it affects dogs uh, psychoactively. You know, we know that there's no psychoactive response as far as like them getting high, but there's no studies that show stress reduction because they haven't been done yet. So we, all we can do is look at the anecdotal things we have recommended to clients because we've seen it make a difference on our dog with separation anxiety. But also at the same time, we know the people who own the company. So we have a little bit more insight as far as it's supposed to be full spectrum. It's not supposed to be just hemp oil because that's equivalent to olive oil. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of things that go into it. And, right. and you need to make sure you're actually getting the real thing. And if you buy it on Amazon, it's not the real thing. It should say full spectrum on the bottle. If it doesn't, then it's not real CBD. <laughs> I'm really scared of what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. But anytime we've used it, it hasn't been like a big sedative. It seems to just take the edge off. Of course, like I said before, that's anecdotal. But I do agree with you yeah. that I I feel like, and we've had some some clients say to us like, "Oh, they just keep running around the house, and I want to just can can I get them started on some CBD to calm them down?" And we're like, "Well, I think the running around the house and the being crazy is a symptom of not actually getting enough of your energy burned off, not getting enough right. mental stimulation, enough physical stimulation." Yeah. So let's start. So you there. you want to try and create zombie dogs that are manageable and right. easy. Right. And I I agree with you on that, that you like, I almost wish that a doctor would, once there's enough studies on it where they can actually back it up, would prescribe it because you can't just throw it at every dog because Mm -hmm. you want them to calm down. Yep. Yeah. I had a a puppy client ask me, the dog is literally three months old. They literally work until seven o'clock. My girls go and walk him twice a day. That's literally his only interaction during the day. Comes home at seven and she wants to obviously cook dinner, deal with her daughter, this and that. Well, can I just give him CBD? I just want him to relax. You were gone wow. all day. No. You yeah. were gone all day. No. That's not See, fair. That's, that, that is the thing that really, really worries me. And I think dog influencers on social media have to take responsibility mm-hmm. for not promoting CBD product as a cure for, you know, and even if it works for their dogs, 
you know, that's something that's always bugged me on social media, how influencers can just take the money and run, you know, basically yeah. and promoting anything they want. And there's nobody's overseeing this process. We saw it with the Fire Island debacle. Remember when, when all these supermodels promoted this, oh, yeah. this crazy party that never happened? Oh, you know, and then people lost all their money and it was a, a huge disaster. Nothing happens to these people who, who promote products like or events. No or accountability things. at all. No accountability. No and, and I think I, I think this is at some point we're gonna have to hold influencers accountable for some things. And that is for me, like I, I mean, I could make a lot of money promoting a lot of shit, I'll tell you. I'm but sure I, I never want to go there because I think it's my responsibility. And and when it comes to CBD, I see a lot of accounts doing it. Uh, because oh, there's everywhere. so much money involved in that industry. Everyone can do whatever they want. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So I think we all have to agree that let's just see what the studies come up with. And like, of course, if it's with a vet or a trainer and it's like part of a, a comprehensive program that you're doing for your dog where there's training, there is a lot of things that happen and CBD comes as a tool, you know, as part of a package you, you're developing with, with professionals. That's one thing. But for people to just be able to buy it on Amazon and, and pop it in their dog like this when they feel like, oh, I just want to have yeah. a quiet evening. Yeah. Like that is not okay. And I, I really want people to to see that. It's like people giving their kids melatonin at night so they oh just God. go to sleep. Driving me nuts. Like, no, be a parent. <laughs> be a parent. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about that though, kids. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Put a little rum in there. In their <laughs> see, I can get behind that. That's how I was raised. <laughs> right? A little rum on the gums. I definitely got to say, though, I appreciate how you handle being approached with different things. Pe- people who want to utilize your reach, you know, to leverage whatever it is that they want. We've talked before and you've ran things by us as far as, you know, should I share this to potentially help this person or is it going to come off the wrong way? Um, I, you're very responsible as far as how you treat your audience and what you put in front of them. And I think that obviously we're part of your audience as well. And, and from our perspective, we really appreciate that. And that's the oh, same reason you. why we don't run ads on our podcast. We don't talk about things when people send us things in the mail. We, we don't, you know, we don't talk about it. We don't push products unless it's something we actually use. And I think that's huge is just to be honest with your audience and don't promote things that you have no idea what they are and you've never seen them or used them a day in your life. Yeah. I think, I think as a humanity, you know, evolves like this phase of social media is a, is a brand new phase in the history of humanity. And we're going to learn, like if you watch that social media, uh, the, yeah, the, the social, social dilemma, dilemma, I think, yep. right. They talk about it. And I think it's very interesting. And we all have a responsibility to take that we live in the world of, influencing and that comes with a huge responsibility and i take that very seriously i mean i know we're in a minority but uh it's not all about money it's not all about numbers uh at some point like it's about human beings that are trusting you and um and i want to make i want to do this right i want to i want to be able to look at myself in the mirror and know that i cross my t's and i i vetted things that i share and yeah, it's it's not an easy job. It takes right. a lot of energy and time and work. It's it's a much harder road to travel, I'll tell you that. But I wouldn't have it any other way. And it's funny because I'm sure the the blue check mark is not a life that you uh were seeking out when you started all this. No. <laughs> no, not at all, but 
what I love about this is that it helps dogs get adopted. Right. And it helps raise money for organizations that need it. Like I, those are the two big things that I use, you know, my platform for. Mm-hmm. And of course, and also selling merchandising and like make sure right. I you got You got to have a living. I have to have the oxygen mask on myself too sometimes. Yes. <laughs> but I love what what I'm able to do now and getting dogs like Roger adopted at seven years or raising 10 grand here and there for organization for whom it makes such a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm very grateful for that. But it's true that it comes with the whole territory and a lot of pressure. And I think I burned out over the years and the, the pandemic has actually allowed me to step back and relax and slow down a lot and my anxiety levels have dropped Good. considerably it's so important yeah it's a lot to i think deal we've with done the same i think we regrouped we have we had our son in march so it was kind of right at the height of it oh, and wow. then yeah we got yeah. to i got we both got to be home with him way longer than oh, we had nice. anticipated so it actually Yes, it's been a dumpster dumpster fire of a year, but at the same time, there were some good parts, you know, like I can't say the entire thing. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of reflecting, a lot of uh, regrouping, and I think for our business, absolutely. Like, I don't think the quality of our podcast was as good as it is now before the pandemic. Um, We've got to put a lot of uh, time and effort into it and really regrouping on what we wanted to do. Um, not only as a couple, but, you know, in, in what we're doing with training and, and getting our thoughts out to the world, how are we going to do that in the most, um, you know, time appropriate way and, um, making it still fun for us. Like this shouldn't be stressful work shouldn't be stressful. And I think we've both set out in the beginning when we started this, that, you know, we did this because it's what we truly wanted to do. It's our passion. So there should not be stress involved. Of course, there's going to be a little bit when you're planning stuff, but (laughs) it shouldn't be like you're waking up. Famous last words. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You shouldn't be where you're waking up and you're like, oh my God, like I don't want to go to work. It should be fun. And we were thinking, you know, how are we going to make this happen? How can we make this, especially a couple working together? Um, Sometimes that can be difficult when you're working together, you're living together all the time. Um, But, you know, I think the pandemic definitely brought us back to uh, reality and and kind of grounded us. Yeah, I, I think so too. And also realizing that sometimes, you know, you can work less, uh, but maybe being more targeted and you end up being so much more efficient. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And posting less. Sometimes you post less and the results are still the same. You still get dogs adopted. You know what I mean? Right. Like I was terrified when I, I, don't, I didn't post for like a couple of weeks and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to lose everybody and nobody's going to care. And then... And then, you know, I just achieved the same results yep. when I came back. So I think we can all learn to um, to find better balance in our lives. And I definitely want to continue that and make sure I do that because working in the rescue community is, is, it's a lot. It's very taxing. Yep. Um, and I think I was, I was on, in a pace that was a lot, uh, you know, traveling to shelters and taking hundreds of, like photographing hundreds of dogs, you know, and and trying to get them adopted and getting the bios ready and all that, like th- that is all work that I do for free, you know, and, and it's just not, it's not my business, but it's most of my time. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a lot like this so, podcast. We don't, we don't right. make any money off of it except for the people that end up reaching out to us and wanting to do like a virtual training session or something like that. But this is our way of getting positive reinforcement out there, adoption out there. It's our way right. of trying to educate as many people as possible on responsible dog ownership. And, you know, all the things that we've talked about in this last you know, little over hour and a half of yeah. <laughs> just being a decent human being and being a better dog owner and then being part of your community and saving animals within your community. 
So that's why we we do this podcast. Yep. Do you want to uh, go ahead and wrap this up? I think we've taken more than enough of your time. Uh, well, is there I any... just feel bad for you guys because, you know, those episodes are going to be uh, <laughs> very long. <laughs> yes, that's okay. That's Jay gets to walk away and then all the editing is on me. Oh, go away. I go to luxury. work. I go train dogs. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> like I'm going to sit bonbons on the couch. <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to, uh, to leave our audience with? Uh, no, I mean, I think... Oh, we covered so much. We could talk for another like three hours. Sophie, I'd love to have oh, you yeah. on again. There were a couple topics that I was like, oh God, we could have a whole episode on this if you're willing to come back yeah, and, and talk about something yeah, more specific I'm, next yeah, time. Yeah, I'm, I'm also working on the new project with the HSI uh, on the dog meat um, dogs in Korea. So oh, okay. in a few months, I'll, I might have more. It's It's a weird topic though, because... Talk about dogs who have not been pets, and now all of a sudden we're like, okay, you're gonna be a pet now. Yep. Right. Yeah, and we had a couple I, of them yeah. at, the, at shelter. the shelter. We had, I think, yeah, seven I of them. Hot mess express. Yeah, that, <laughs> so I think that was an amazing conversation, and we definitely have a ton more to talk about. And I think our listeners are gonna take a ton away from that. Yeah. Um, where can they find you if they want to follow you on social media or or get some of your amazing merchandise? Yeah, I think the first uh, place to go is my website, sophiegammon.com. Um, because who knows what's going to happen to social media. I was worried that what if Instagram decides to pull the plug, <laughs> you know? Right. So go on my website and you can see my work and then you can sign up for my newsletter, which is the most direct way, you know, to stay in touch with me and, and get my latest news. Um, and I don't send too many of them. Uh, I'm, I'm very good at that. I try to do like try once a month. Spam. Yeah. Yeah, I try not to spam, though. I'm, I might try and increase a little bit because my newsletter go out once a month and then it's like you get a whole encyclopedia of <laughs> adoption stories and like a bunch of things. But it's always cute and fun. And then social media, everything is at Sophie Gammond. So Facebook and Instagram are the two main platforms where I am, especially Instagram. And then, yeah, I, I, I have uh, the Pitbull Flower Power book. I have a wet dog book. I, have a, I try to have a bunch of cute, fun merchandise uh, that you can buy uh, via my website. This helps me. It funds all my work with rescue and all the, the pro bono work that I do um, with animal rescue and all the visits uh, to shelters. Hopefully soon I can go back to shelters. Um, it helps me uh, with all the projects I take on. And um, uh, yeah, it's a great way also to advocate, I feel. You know, if you have a little tote bag with a beautiful photo of a pit bull, it's a converse- conversation starter. And, yeah, absolutely. And I think... I love to be able to give those tools to people advocates and, and dog people also. So it's a great way to support and a great way to advocate. And uh, yeah, this, this I have it. my Darla phone case I'm looking at right now. It's, oh, yes, of course. I love that you have it. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah. I have also, I have a rum phone case myself, which is a cute little puppy. Um, the other thing too I want to mention is my Patreon. I, if people are familiar with that, it's a, it's a sponsorship so it's it's almost like a Kickstarter. Uh, you donate uh, every month, though. So it's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Sophie Gammond. And you can become a monthly sponsor of my work through that platform. And it starts at $1.50 a month, I think. And you get access to stories and, and thoughts and things that I, I don't necessarily share on social media. It's all the VIP discounts. stuff. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's more, a more intimate community and it's also for people who think wow she does great work but i don't need a tote bag you know yeah, but exactly i'll support that way uh so yeah 
That's yeah. another way to Awesome. To I will link all that stuff in the show notes. Yeah, so thanks a lot. For anybody listening. Thank you so much. This was uh, amazing and so interesting yes. uh, to talk about. And I hope that we can uh, circle back in the future and definitely dig a little deeper into some of these topics because oh, absolutely. it's not yes. often we, we find somebody who we can have this kind of conversation with and get so in-depth <laughs> because yeah. you have such an understanding because you've been she to so many it. shelters and... Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to be able to get some things off our chest, and I'm sure you feel the same yeah, way. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast, and yes, let's do this again in a few months. Absolutely, and for everyone listening, of course, as usual, you can find us at Paulson University on Instagram or go to paulsonuniversity.com. If you want to buy us a coffee and support the podcast, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Paulson. That's all we have for this episode. Until next week. Class dismissed.